Essentially, what probability theory allows us to do is to take assumptions about how the world works, how the data is generated, and turn it and flip it round after we observe some data into statements about our uncertainty about underlying features of the world. We're like, we can do that flip, which of course is very explicit in Bayesian work indeed, where you know, after seeing some data, our uncertainty you know, turns into uncertainty about the underlying quantities. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a mathematical statistician dedicated to helping the public understand risk and make better decisions under conditions of uncertainty. He holds a PhD in mathematical statistics from the University of London, was a president of the Royal Statistical Society from 2017 to 2018, and since 2016 has served as the chair of the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication at Cambridge University. He's a fantastic scientific communicator who has been featured numerous times on Radio 4 and in many documentaries, such as Morgan Freeman's Through the Wormhole and The Joy of Stats. In addition to hosting a podcast called Risky Talk, he's written articles with entertaining titles such as How Dangerous is Burnt Toast, Choose the Yum and Rise the Yuck, and A Nine-Point Guide to Spotting a Dodgy Statistic. However, you may recognize him as the author of several books on the topic of statistics, including The Art of Statistics and his latest book, COVID by the Numbers. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a knight in shiny Bayesian armor, Professor Risk himself, Sir David Spiegelhalter. Professor, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I appreciate having you here. Oh, it's great. Thank you for a wonderful introduction. I did do this other article, which was very successful on the BBC website, Will I Live Longer Than My Cat? And that, that you know, attracted a lot of views. It's still there. You know. Yeah, I'll definitely have to link to that one in the uh, show notes for sure. Will I Live Longer Than My Cat? That is not a very interesting title. I mean, it's, it's, you've definitely written some really interesting articles on statistics, a number of amazing books on statistics. This is definitely one of my favorite books on statistics right here. But talk to us about how you first got interested in statistics and what was it that drew you to this field? Oh, yeah. Well, I started off doing maths and I did maths at school. It was, it was what I was quite good at. So I did maths at university. I went to Oxford and, uh, and I, it's really very pure maths. And I, I liked the pure maths. But to be honest, by about halfway through the second year, it got too difficult. I, you know, just the level of abstraction was so high. And, and I was getting a bit discouraged. But fortunately, I had a, an inspiring, like so many people, I can go back to an inspiring teacher. And he was a young man. He's now Professor Sir Adrian Smith, president of the Royal Society, top scientist in the country, essentially one of them. And when he was then 25 or something like that, and he was our tutor in, in to teach us maths. And he was he was not only interested in statistics, he was interested in Bayesian statistics. And so he was translating Dave Panetti's book on the theory of probability. So we used to sit in the pub and have long discussions about what is probability, what does it mean? You know, and those 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 arguments over beer have um, you know you know stayed with me and inspired me and kept me going. And, and I can just as I'll have an argument about what is probability unchanged from fifty years ago, and I'll just launch in and we'll start arguing about does it exist or not? You know, the Bayesian versus the Frequentist paradigm, and I just let just wind me up and off I'll go just like 50 years ago. 
And this is uh, one of the main reasons that I'm super excited to have you on the show because you know I want to ask you some questions about this, about what it is, what probability oh, yeah. is in Bayesian yeah. statistics and stuff. A couple of weeks ago, maybe about a month ago already, I had a, a friend of yours, a professor, Marcus Dusotoy, on the show, and he's the one that introduced right. us and, and put us in touch. Professor Dusotoy, thank you very much for that. Never in my life would I have thought that uh, a kid destined for failure, such as myself, would be sitting here talking about probability and mathematics, which esteemed professors like yourself. But Let's let's get into this. First thing I want to ask you is is why is it that it seems like mathematicians tend to dislike teaching statistics? Oh yeah, yeah, no, because statistics is not part of mathematics, and there's you know there's mathematical statistics, which I used to teach in Cambridge to the math students, and the only way to make it acceptable, I think, to the math students was to make it very mathematical, and it's all in terms of you know proving theorems and you know proving rules and laws and things like that. So there is this part of statistics that essentially is very mathematical, and that's what I learned and that's what I've taught. But that's not statistics. That's not what I do. I've been a professional statistician for forty-five years or so, and uh, I've done some maths and. It's been incredibly valuable to know some maths, but that's not what I do. And I think I'm, you know, you know, proper statistician. It's not a part of mathematics. The crucial difference is that in statistics, there are not yes, no, black, white answers. That's the big difference. I've finally decided that's what makes it not part of mathematics, that there's always judgment involved. In my Art of Statistics book, you know, I got a lovely quote from Signal and the Noise, Nate Silver's book, great book. And, he's, and he really hammers this on. He says, you know, the numbers do not speak for themselves. We speak for them. We imbue them with meaning. So that's what I really love about statistics is that it is, it uses math. It's a mathematical science, I suppose. But it, it is to do with interactions with the real world and people. It is embedded in real problems that people face. And so that's why I love it. But it's not part of maths. And no wonder mathematicians find it they don't want to teach. I don't blame them at all. It's very unsatisfying, partly because you don't even know what is probability anyway. You know, you don't even know what these things mean. And so uh, it's a deeply contested subject. That's what makes it such fun. Why I love it. It's it's yeah. I'm not at all surprised that mathematicians don't want to teach it, and that's why you know I, they shouldn't teach it in universities. Mathematicians should not teach statistics in universities. And uh, the real problem happens in schools, because in schools you've got math teachers, and some of them quite like teaching the stats. A lot don't like teaching the stats because there's no yes, no black white answer, um, and so that's a real problem because there is not a dedicated training. You know group of people who are trained to teach statistics and data science in schools and i think that is a real real problem we might get to this you know for the future of education in the world it's interesting uh, i was uh, interviewed professor andrew gelman maybe a year or so i can't remember how long okay. it's been now yeah, yeah he, he's awesome and he made this uh, statement that i just it really stuck with me he said statistics is the least important part of data science and i just found that to be such an interesting uh Interesting idea, but it's just it, it's just part of it. It's just part of it. So I've yeah. been really inspired by it. I've been really inspired by Andrew as well. I find him. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's very interesting. Yeah, he's definitely a very interesting. Interesting professor. I enjoy speaking with him. But as you mentioned in your book, uh, rigorous definitions are important in statistics. So I guess what is statistical science, and what is it all about? Yeah, that's a good question. I kind of think of it as the art of learning from data, and that's what I call my, you know, the book. I sort of use those terms because it, it, although it's a statistical science, I call it the art of statistics, my book, because there is elements of strong judgment in there. It, it's not uh, you don't. It's not like some algorithm you apply to data and it gives up its answers. No, no, and that's what Nate Silver said. You know, it's it's it, it necessarily involves judgment. And, and that's what makes it so delightful. But it is, it, but it, you know, it is based on data, on numerical information, on counting things. And then, and it involves the whole business of deciding what to count and, and going out there and getting it and cleaning it up and all that kind of stuff. But crucially, it then involves that step of deciding, well, what does it mean? You know, what can we learn from it? What can we conclude with all the uncertainties and uh, all the limitations? How does, it, how does it answer our questions we actually started with? And that's what's so interesting about it. And I think it, it makes it into a, a beautiful, valuable, fascinating and infuriating subject. And as you talk about in your book, The, the Art of Statistics, which I highly recommend everyone check out, definitely one of my 
favorite books on statistics and probably one of the only books on statistics that I've read that has given a clear framework for how to handle problems and, and approach problems in statistics. And you, you call it the PPDAC cycle. Talk to us about that framework. Yeah, I mean, I think I, 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 someone from New Zealand told me they refer to it as PPDAC, I think. So that's is stolen from New Zealand, but it, I, originally Wayne Olford, I think, developed that in, in Canada, in, in um, Waterloo University. And the whole point is, I start the book, is about problem solving. So, you know, the P, you got PPDAC, you got, you know, it starts with P, the first P is a problem. There's something you actually want to know about the world. And it may be a prediction, maybe to understand causation. It may be just to know how many of something there are out there. So there's some problem that you want. And then the second piece is the plan. You know, actually, can the data answer the problem? Maybe you just can't answer it. You know, be, then just give up. You know, just know that you have it. You just cannot answer this question. A bit like, you know, saying, okay, I want to know how effective face masks are. Well, there isn't any data out there that's suddenly going to tell you this. You know, you, this is unanswerable, essentially, from the data that's available. So but then you want to go out and collect what you can, you know, and see what there is, and maybe do an experiment or whatever. So then you, you have to plan it and think about it in advance. I think that's a really crucial thing. Statistics is not just responding to data. It's, it's, it's innovative and experimental and, 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 and imaginative. So then, then, you know, you get the data and that's, you know, just, or you just get the data. Well, of course, that's a massive issue, collecting it and cleaning it and checking it and doing what missing data and all that stuff. So, but basically it's turning it into a nice form. It's that wrangling bit as well. It's the collection and wrangling to turn it into something you can do something with. And then you do the analysis, that's the A, but even that's complicated because you've got, exploratory analysis just looking at the data drawing graphs that may be quite enough and then you've got a confirmatory analysis where that's the one little bit and this is what andrew i think is referring to that's the one little tiny bit where all this stuff that we learn in statistics about probability theory and sampling distribution the sample mean and confidence intervals blah 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 there's one little bit where that comes in then you get into the C, which is conclusions and communication. And that's unbelievably important you know, because it's working out, well, what can I actually say? And how am I going to say it? And then the whole thing starts again. The crucial thing is then you just go straight. All that does always is generate another problem, another question. And you start, and round around you go. So when they, they really develop this in the New Zealand education system, and they really get kids to do this cycle very quickly, the whole thing in an hour kind of thing, you know, just, just to really do it again and again and again. Very, very brilliant training. And so I, I this, this, just learning about this different way of teaching it um, has revolutionized my my ideas about teaching stats and led to the book being having a very different structure, which probability doesn't come in till two thirds of the way through and so on. But there's lots of people now who've flipped around to do that. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that's something I want to touch on a little bit later is, is why is that probability? Like, cause I mean, I, I studied stats and, and, in grad school, a little bit in undergrad as well. And I took a ton of statistics before taking the first probability theory course. And at that point it was probably like, you know, third year undergraduate before I took like, you know, first year probability course. But, but yeah, I guess, why is it, why is it that pro like, you know, we put the statistics cart in front of the probability course? Well, I, yeah, no, I mean, the traditional way of teaching is the probability comes first. And when I was teaching it in Cambridge to the math students, yeah, they've done all the probability because traditional statistics start straight away. You might do, you know, mean, median and mode and a few summary stuff. And then you get straight onto sampling distributions of individual data points. And then that leads to sampling distributions of statistics, sample means, central limit theorem, and all that stuff that, allow, that builds this structure for the mathematical results for constructing confidence intervals and so on. But you don't have to do it that way. That assumes probability you know, comes first. And in the book, I, I was amazed in writing the book. It took me ages to structure it. And it was a revelation to me that I could write nearly the whole book with only the idea of picking something at random, which a three-year-old child can understand, that you stick your hand in and pull something at random. That's all you need for nearly all of statistics, <laughs> especially if you introduce you know, uncertainty through bootstrapping. So um, it, it, it's quite extraordinary how, you, how far you can get with those ideas before bringing in probability theory. Then it is useful to bring it together because then it means that you can do some stuff using mathematical results rather than simulation. And you can, and, and then if you start going to start doing p-values and hypothesis tests, you can do a lot of that without probability theory, but actually it makes it hugely easier if you've got some 
probability theory behind you. So, and of course, the Bayesian stuff yeah. absolutely needs probability because Bayesian statistics is just a branch of probability. So yeah, it's absolutely essential for that. Before we move into some of those philosophical uh, discussions, I want to ask a question. You, you mentioned in, in the book that statistics is kind of uh, to blame for the reproducibility and, and replication crises in, in science. It, why, why is that? And does, well, I wouldn't say statistics is, the statistics is to blame for it. No, no, it's just that there is a, you know, there is a, a real problem. And, and statistical, you know, in a way, misuse of stats is, is part of that. I think. And, and that's very recognized that, you know, I know that, you know, I can get a set of data and I can prove almost anything from it if you give me long enough, you know, torture the data till it gives up, you know, the answer you want. And um, so, you know, th that's why the important pre-specification analyses and so on, though, you know, if you really want to do a confirmatory analysis, you should specify it beforehand and, 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 and so on. So uh, I think that it's a part of that. But there's lots of other aspects to do with lack of reproducibility and replication. I mean, just, but, you know, uh, since so much of the claim, the claims in science are based on finally a statistical result, then it's the lack of reproducibility of those statistical results does become a very, very important aspect. Yeah. And so speaking of, of learning from, from data, you know, take going from essentially a sample out to general population, you talk about, you know, inductive versus deductive inference. So I guess, how can we use this process of inductive inference when we want to use data to learn about something? I guess I might have just leaked the answer there a little bit, but. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I, you know, there's supposed to be a problem with induction. I don't see much of a problem at all, provided you realize that everything you do when you're doing induction is assumption based. You know, there's no true way of doing it. There's no correct way of doing it. It's all based on assumptions because you're generalizing from a particular to a general, whether it's the future or whether it's a general population. And the only way to do that is make assumptions. Maybe the sun won't rise tomorrow. You have to make assumptions. And so once you've got the idea of a statistical model, uh, which is, you know, a map of the world, it's not reality, all models are wrong. But once you've got that idea of a model, in other words, your assumptions about how the world works, then you can do induction. Um, but it's model dependent. You know, whatever your understanding is, you, you can't make any conclusions if you've got some understanding about the pro underlying processes. Otherwise, you can't say anything. Because anything could happen. Everything, you know, something like you'd be like a baby where everything is a total surprise. You know, everything just woo, pops up. And my dog, and actually, my dog is more intelligent than that. My dog realizes that one thing tends to follow another. And she gets very upset when I don't feed her at the right time. If, you know, if I picked up a bowl and didn't feed her, she'd be, you know, staggered. She just couldn't. So the dog can do it. So, but that's because the dog has got a model, <laughs> little internal model of the world that, you know, I'm a, somehow a reliable person, you know. Probably not right, but never mind. But so I don't see a problem with it really. Um, but it, as long as you realize that everything is dependent on assumptions and those assumptions will be wrong, they're always inadequate. Every model is wrong, but you can do go a long way with it. But you have to have some humility about acknowledging the limitations of what you're doing. Uh, so I guess just to kind of press on the question a little bit more here so when we talk about induction and inductive inference, like should the, should the philosopher in us? get worried at all about the problem of induction in, in statistics not at all uh, i don't think so no and I, I mean i can i you know i read a little bit of human you can see the sort of you know complaints about the fact that there's no you know there's almost paradox that you know there's no reason you know logical reason why this should be possible and i completely agree but that doesn't matter because you've got to do it and everyone does it and so uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's why people don't like, you know, people don't like, mathematicians don't like statistics. You have to make this sort of leap of faith almost, because it's not like from axioms you can show something in deduction. I mean, in the, the very problem in, in statistics is that you know the axioms are untrue. <laughs> you know, your assumptions are untrue. There's no such thing as a normal distribution. There's no such thing as independent observations. There's no, all these things we assume are untrue. We know they're not true. So everything we say is conditional on, on assumptions that we know are untrue now the crucial thing is how much it matters and that's a matter of judgment and so i think no wonder mathematicians don't like it it's totally opposite subject totally it's completely in the wrong direction 
So just the, the, the statement there that we know the normal distribution, it, it's untrue. Talk to us a little bit about that. Like uh, the, I know that some of the audience members listening are, are going to be scratching their heads like, what do you mean normal distribution? Well, for example, you know, the normal distribution has got a domain from minus infinity to infinity. When we analyze people's heights, it's actually, they're pretty normally distributed in the population, but they don't go off to minus infinity. You know, now that may not matter. The fact that they're truncated at zero, it doesn't matter very much. And uh, and they don't go off to plus infinity either. You don't get 50-foot-high people, even, even in 10 billion. But you should do if it was really a normal distribution. So that well, maybe not 50 I don't know. You'd have to get, you'd get staggering. So anyway, so, but it's, it's a, in the area that matters, it's a really good assumption and doesn't matter that much anyway. So we know all these things run, but they, but they work. So do you have any examples of when inductive inference has failed in statistics that you could share with us? Well, about a million of them, I <laughs> every time. Yeah, yeah the, the financial crash in 2008. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a you know classic example where people's models were wrong, and so they make all these judgments about what's going to happen. They're completely, they're just completely deluded themselves because of the wrong models. So you know, there's there's endless examples where people have just made the wrong assumptions. They're making inductive inference about what will happen, you know, in in other situations given the ones they've observed, and it didn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's something I've been running into a lot of lately is uh, that talk about the 2008 financial crisis. I've been reading a lot of uh, Nassim Taleb and then some, some Mandelbrot misbehavior markets. And it's just been changing kind of like, I feel like everything I, I, I knew about the law of large numbers, the central limit theorem was yeah, yeah. wrong. Yeah, no, no, I think, and um, you know, in fact, you know, as Taleb says, and others, you just have to assume you know, heavy tail, power tails, and if their powers, you know, is wider than a Cauchy, there's no central limit theorem at all. You know, there's just no things don't converge. You don't get this nice behavior. Things happen suddenly far bigger, you know, more extreme than anything you've ever observed before. But there's, you know, there's a statistical theory for all this. There's extreme value theory. There's all these things. It's not like this is magic. We know about it. we actually had to deal with these situations. Um, it's not like this is some oh. That means statistics, you know, is wrong or doesn't work. No, we know how to deal with these things. It's just that it hasn't been done very well. So getting into to probability here, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but just to really solidify the concept here, why do we need probability theory when we're doing statistics? Yeah, that's a good problem. As I said, I don't think you do until you get on quite advanced stuff. Uh, you don't. Um, Actually, you know, you could say you could do almost all of stats without probability theory if you use sort of a simulation method, what's called bootstrapping, and you simulate new data sets similar to the one you've already got, look at the variation in those data sets in your analyses, and it gives you an idea of what the uncertainty is about what you're doing. But if you can use probability theory, it makes it a hell of a lot easier because <laughs> you can do quite a lot in closed form or through approximations and so on. It just really helps to act as if the world works probabilistically, whether it does or not, whether it's all, it might all be, you know, preordained by some great intelligence. We might all be sitting on the backs of a pile of turtles, but it doesn't matter. We act, we act as if things work in a stochastic way. We act as if murders happen, you know, in a according to some stochastic process. Well, they don't either, but it's, it's as if they do. You know, it's amazing how well, that's why I show in the book, things like Poisson distributions fit the number of murders each, each, each day and things like that. So it is extraordinary how the world, through you know, having enormous complexity and vast numbers of possibilities of things happening, actually what does happen, follow then starts following laws, you know, reasonable laws, as if they, it was a random process. So, you know, so I, you know, this is brilliant. It's wonderful. So we can use probability theory to do extraordinary things. Probably we don't actually believe it. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> and essentially what probability theory allows us to do is to take assumptions about how the world works, how the data is generated, and turn it and flip it around after we observe some data into statements about our uncertainty about underlying features of the world. Well, like we can do that flip which, of course, is very explicit in Bayesian work, indeed, where, you know, after seeing some data, our uncertainty, you know, turns into uncertainty about the underlying quantities that are, gen that are doing the generating. So we learn about the underlying processes, and our uncertainty about those are come from, naturally, assumptions about the uncertainty, the, the variability in the data. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, so statistical inference is a way of turning variability into uncertainty. 
which I think I was told 50 years ago by some wise statisticians. And I thought, what on earth are they talking about? No idea what that is. So after 50 years, I finally come to that conclusion. <laughs> they were right. Okay. Run that back one more time. That the quote that statistics turns variability into variability into uncertainty. Because variability, the probability distributions in the world, the normal distribution of the problem, is all to do with variability. It's all right. to do with just how things how things vary from time to time, place to place, and things. And by making assumptions about that and going through the statistical sort of um, you know machine, we end up making statements about they uh, are personal uncertainty about what about these underlying mechanisms about the parameters we could call the things of greek letters the things that actually produce this variable underlie this variability the, the processes underneath so which is an extraordinary thing so because in the end we want to use to say we want, we want to learn from data and that means you know taking the data and then afterwards coming up with some uncertain statements about how the world works and by you know, uh, uh, making assumptions about how the data was, how the data, the, the, the mechanisms by which the data was presented. But we, what the clever thing is that we can do it by just making certain assumptions about how the data was generated, for example, normal distributions. But we don't make assumptions about, you know, the, the, where that normal distribution is or something. Now we have to learn from the data. Hey, I mean, that's a simplification because, you know, we can learn about the shape of the distribution from the data as well. And also within a Bayesian framework, we start off also with some judgments about where the center of that distribution. So, you know, that's not a hard and fast rule at all, but that's the general idea. I think. So before, before we get into the Bayesian stuff, let's kind of take, take a step back here. Maybe first principles, I don't know if that's the right word to use in this, but, but what, what is probability? How do we measure it? I mean, it seems like such a strange epistemological well, concept. Exactly. You tell me what it is. I haven't got a clue. Well, I, I do have a belief. I mean, the probability is, I, I would consider it as a virtual quantity. It doesn't exist. I mean, you, you know, if you've got time and mass and, and length and all this sort of stuff, there's scales for it. We can temperature, we can measure it. You can't measure probability. There's no probability ometer. You can't measure it. It doesn't exist. It's not out there in the world at all. So I, I, I genuinely believe this, and I think it's the only way to, it's only, for me, it's the only way to think about it. So it's essentially constructed. It's a, it's a construction. So that's why I actually, I don't believe it objectively exists, except possibly at a subatomic level, because although there's, I mean, apparently still an argument about whether there are hidden causes behind, for example, you know, um, you know, breaking up or whatever, it's, it's you know, I think Hawking uses the term determined probabilities for the probability that uranium atom will, will, you know, will, you know, will fall apart in the next, you know, hour, minute, second or something like that. So th these are actual, un the, the, the only unconditional probabilities. These, the only ones I would consider are, properties of the world everything else is conditional and probably any number we put on anything is conditional on assumptions and knowledge and they will vary from person to person and their constructions these numbers do not exist out there in the world and De Finetti in his book theory of probability which Adrian Smith was translating when I first met him you know right on page one he's got big bold letters probability does not exist so I learned that when I was 19 I suppose never shifted my opinion no Absolutely. So that means I'm a Bayesian subjectivist in that I don't, I believe probabilities are constructed by argument and discussion. They're not estimated, they're assessed and they'll vary from person to person and place to place. I mean, can, can we say there's a, at least some type of difference between maybe epistemic probability and, and some physical or I believe you say aleatory? Aleatory. Yeah, yeah, that can be useful, but it's, you know, like, you know, the way I usually do it is, you know, I've got a coin, I'm trying to find a coin now, and I, you know, I say, okay, what's the probability of this coin coming up heads? Can't find a coin. And anyway, we can imagine a coin. Here's a coin. What's And that's an aleatory probability. So you might think this is chance, property of the coin, it may not be 50-50 exactly, or doesn't it? Then it might depend on how I flip it. But let's say 50 50. So I flip it, put it over, like cover it up. What's the probability this is heads? And when I do this all the time with audiences and school kids, and they will go, oh, blah, 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 blah. and then eventually somebody, some brave soul might say 50 50. And I say, yeah, that's your probability. And then I look at the coins, it's not mine. Mm -hmm. So well, what I've done there is flip from, you know, aleatory chance to epistemic uncertainty. Once the coin's flipped, it's covered up. There's no uncertainty, there's no chance left, no randomness. It's purely my lack of knowledge, but it hasn't changed. It's still 50-50, long as I don't look at it. So I, I think it's really, that it can be a useful distinction. 
partly because it explains the Bayesian approach, because the Bayesians are just as happy with putting probabilities on epistemic uncertainty, what they happen not to know, as for future events. There's no distinction between those two at all. Whereas uh, within a classical framework, frequentist framework, you're not allowed to put probabilities on, on events that have occurred, allowed to do it. So is, would there be a difference, I guess, in, in the way that maybe a philosopher or a statistician would interpret probability? Yeah, I, I mean, I tend not to read philosophers writing about probability because I kind of think, oh, I can't be bothered. You know, I, I, sort of, I, 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 I argued about this in the pub 50 years ago. I made up my mind and that's it. So, <laughs> um, so I, I can't be bothered, you know, because there, is, there are some claims, oh, yeah, probabilities are somehow out there. There's some underlying propensity for something to happen in the world. Well, I don't. Okay. You know, show me it. You know, I'm. I'm I suppose I'm a very much a pragmatist. I, I follow um, C.S. Peirce or something. You know, I believe you know, unless you can show me the thing, I'm not going to. I'm going to treat it as a virtual quantity and use it. Use it all the time, but I'm not going to pretend it. So that that I and and people will have different views. There are Bayesian philosophers are probably there's all sorts of different views. But the point is that nobody there's no consensus about this at all. There's no agreed, no wonder people don't like discussing this problem, you know, mathematicians or even philosophers, because there's no agreed idea of what probability is. Can you believe it? You know, it's, I, I find it, you know, it's, it's like a dirty secret. You know, you've got to admit it to people that, oh, you do realize this entire world subject we've built about probability and statistics is built on unbelievably shaky ground. And the, the very basic ideas, the mathematics is agreed. But the very basic ideas, what it means, there's no agreement. I think that's part of what makes it really difficult and unintuitive to grasp and to think about and, and yeah. Yeah. use it to make judgments. I mean, it, probability theory, if I'm, correct me if I'm, I'm, I'm wrong, kind of arose from uh, games, games of chance, yeah. right? That's kind of yeah. that, that, yeah. that's what birthday. And in those domains, you know, you're rolling a you know, six sided die, two of them. What do you expect to see on average? Those types of domains, I feel like it's we can intuitively kind of grok that with that. Yeah, means. they're fine. They're fine, but they're all wrong. I yeah. mean, they're all just they all make assumptions about the coins and things. So when I yeah, demonstrate yeah. with kids, yeah. I carry two-headed coins with me and just say, "Look, oh, sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you didn't think of that, did you? So this probably isn't a half or whatever, and it's not going to convert to anything. No, I fiddled it. So it's all based on assumptions about the, the, the model and the process. And then you can draw some con mathematical conclusions. Yeah. But, you know, the coins don't come up exactly 50-50. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways. These things just don't, as I said, apart from possibly at the subatomic level, they don't exist as, as, as verifiable numbers. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I kind of use it uh, as a, you know, a way to make decisions. It's kind of a weird way now. I can't believe I'm going to be saying this out loud, but I, I think about any action I'm going to take, right? If I'm going to take an action, if I'm going to do something, you know, what would the result be of this action in, let's say, a thousand parallel universes, right? Is it going to be a favorable yeah. outcome 20% of the time, favorable yeah. outcome, you know, yeah. X percent of the time, but you ever only see one reality. So it's yeah. like, yeah, it's kind of hard to explain. I don't know if that makes sense. That's great. No, I love that metaphor. I use that, I can't what I call metaphorical probability. I really love that interpretation. It's the only one I really like, I think. I you know, if you are going to have a some sort of mechanistic, apart from just pure subjective belief, I, I like to think of that as so, well. You know, if I'm talking about a future, I think, well, there are all, as I said, there's 100 possible ways things might turn out, for example. They're all equally likely, all these little paths going out into the future. In what proportion of those possible futures is the coin going to come up heads? I'm going to be alive in 10 years' time. The world will, will cease to exist in a century, et cetera, et cetera. All these parts, and some of them end in, uh, you know, catastrophe and others carry on okay. And I think that's a fantastic metaphor. Um, you know, a multiverse type metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what, the, but the bizarre, the thing that I've been criticized for, you know, on, uh, others who do this is that you end up your frequency interpretation of what actually is a Bayesian subjective judgment. So if I think, so I, if my probability for, you know, the world ending by year 2100 is, you know, 0.1 or something, or is 1%, my pure judgmental probability, what I mean, you know, one way of describing that is out of 100 possible futures, it's going to happen in one. 
you know, and which is a frequency interpretation, you know, which is very valuable, fantastic. When we, when I, when with the stuff we design for patients to use when they're discussing cancer risks and everything, we never use the word probability, chance, or any any of those things. It's always described in terms of out of a hundred people like you, what would we expect to happen to them in the future? Um, we don't use out of a hundred ways things might turn out for you. Um, partly in those circumstances, I don't think it's. That's not the right metaphor because we know the numbers that we incorporate are not what we use are not personalized. There's always factors about the individual that will be different. So it's when we talk about these risks, it's not your risk because we've only put a few things into a formula and into an algorithm. So the correct embedding of that to say out of a hundred people who tick the same boxes as you, we'd expect so many to be alive in 10 years, 60 to be alive. And that's the appropriate metaphor, I think. To, for you know, for communicating that problem, that judgment. So I, I I think this is really important, and I think people are not stupid, and that a good metaphor like that really, can really work with people. And I much prefer. I don't use chances. I don't use coin analogies anymore for any of these things. Yeah. Um, I used to all the time, and now it's just stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Usually when I start talking about a hundred possible parallel universes, people start looking at me like I'm crazy, but I'm glad that no, you were like, no, I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah, but yeah, but people do think you're crazy. So you <laughs> some people really get it, you know, hundred possible futures for you, where you think and then for climate change, because there's only gonna be one planet going. So you can't say out of a hundred planets like this, really. You have to say out of a hundred possible futures for this planet. This is what we'd expect to happen. And I don't think that's, especially if you, I've seen some lovely drawings where you see this sort of lovely, you know, here we are at the moment and we, there are all sorts of ways we could have got here. So you've got all these sort of tangled web of possible causal paths. And then from now on, there's this tangled web of possible ways in which things might turn out, you know, with the multiverses or whether they all happen simultaneously because it doesn't matter. But we don't have to go into that because we're only going to see one of them. And we don't know which one it is. So I think this idea of a sort of spaghetti of possible futures, one of which is going to happen, is a very powerful image. And of course, you see it. That's what Monte Carlo analysis does explicitly, is draw spaghetti, you know, plots for the future. There's a, a, a saw this beautiful image that that almost captured everything you talk about. And it was it was a uh, it, it was a hundred different paths leading up to one moment in time with the with the barrier, a line, and then yeah. it, it said all your possible futures like going for it so it, oh, to me it was like have you seen that i i, I made one of those by getting yeah. a picture of an opt- a, a squid and cutting it in half and putting it back so so there's the squid going up and the squid coming back. Yeah. <laughs> oh that's really cool oh, i'm glad yeah. others are doing that yeah yeah if I, if I find it i'll send you send you an email but i'd like to steal that one yeah but when i see that it's just like oh okay well that means the future is a probability distribution like, obviously the past is determined it's determined, it's determined it's but we might know not know which path was taken to get us here that's true so that's yeah. to do with causation we, we have to do with attribution and things like that mm-hmm. so, which is a, another whole problem particularly of course in criminology and you know for, where the probability is all epistemic uncertainty because the uncertainty is about what happened and you're trying to judge the possible paths by which this particular event happened <laughs> so in crime Everything is to do with the paths that led to the current situation. And so, the uncertainty about those. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I don't have any intelligent response to that one. So let's get into Bayesian stuff. <laughs> uh, no, so let's talk about it. Yeah. 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 Oh, sorry, go on. No, go on. that's why we're working on crime, on, on um, edu- education for lawyers and things that to do with it. And it's all Bayesian, but we can't use that. We don't use that word. And that's right you're not allowed to use bayesian approaches in the uk cool. courts right yeah so I, I guess talk to us about that like what, what's the bayesian approach all about and why is it that courts in in, in the uk are, are banning it or have banned it well one of the points about the bayesian approach is that it explicitly introduces judgment and you know that is is far from being something to be embarrassed about it's something to highlight the fact that there's um it's a, a method of of learning meaning that it's not just what does the data tell us, it's, it's given what we thought originally, how does the data, what, how, what is it reasonable to believe after we observe the data? So you have to specify what you thought beforehand, this prior distribution, and which is an enormously valuable thing, but it is introducing judgment. 
into the analysis and that's considered by many people you know and you've got to therefore be very clear about what you're introducing you've got to justify it you've got to do sensitivity analysis of different assumptions much better to have lots of people's opinions feeding through and so on so it's got to be done you have a huge responsibility in doing that but in the end i believe it's the right thing to do in court you're not allowed to do that because you can't put the prior distribution in that's actually saying Oh, this, you know, you know, just be almost prejudice, I think, well, this person is more likely to have done it than anybody than somebody else. You, know, you, you can't say that. Yeah. So you're only allowed in the basin in, in the court to put in what's called the likelihood ratio, which is the in a way the, the deductive aspect. It's the probability of the evidence given either guilt or innocence or some other hypoth- pair of hypotheses. That's the likelihood, the central part of the base theorem. So you're not allowed to do the whole base theorem business. You can only do the data bit of it. Yeah, mm. and you are allowed to do that in court. So, so how is this different from the the frequentist approach to to viewing probability? What's the central yeah. difference? Yeah, I suppose the central difference is is just what is probability in the frequentist approach. You assume probabilities to do with long run frequencies of repeated similar events. How if I keep on doing something, how often something will happen? So it's, that's that is what probability actually means. Um, Whereas the Bayesian thing, that's this, you know, you know, is relevant, but it's not. That's not what probability means at all. So, you know, according to a frequency thing, you couldn't have a probability of a particular horse winning a particular race, um, because that race is unthinkable to think of that race being repeated again and again and again. In what proportion of times that might, in that particular race, you know, that horse might win? Now, as I said, the, in a way, the paradox is that in explaining a judgmental probability. It is actually quite useful to think of 100 races like that in what proportion. So as a metaphor, it's actually quite a good thing to think about it. These 100 possible universes in which the race is won, in what proportion does this horse win? But it's not what the probably actually means. That is purely a way of communicating magnitude. It's not what it means. And that is the crucial difference within a frequentist framework. That is actually the only way to define what a probability is. And that's why when frequentists go through this business of turning assumptions about distributions into uncertainty statements, they have to go do this convoluted confidence interval business. Instead of just saying, well, this interval is a 95% probability that the true, I, you know, based on my assumptions, there's a 95% probability that this interval contains the true value. You have to say, oh, if I repeated this process, you know, millions of times, in 95% of the time, this random interval would contain the unknown fixed quantity. They often oh, for goodness sake, you know, really. It's a convoluted way of it's, it's not it's so convoluted, it's so incomprehensible, and everyone gets it wrong. There again, yeah. I've taught I've taught it for years. So I can move between the two quite happily. And in fact, of course, I'd never use and I, I'd never use when I'm actually doing my communication work. I couldn't care less. I call them all uncertainty intervals, whether they're Bayesian. Because in COVID at the moment, some of the stuff's confidence intervals based on classical analysis, but most of them are Bayesian intervals because all the modeling is Bayesian pretty well in COVID. So they're credible intervals. These are Bayesian uncertainty intervals. And I don't use either word. I just call them uncertainty intervals. Do mm. Bayesians and frequentists fundamentally dislike each other? No, I don't think so. Well, they used to be, yeah, I mean, they used to be real, you know, when I grew up as a statistician, there's huge ideological arguments, you know, every, because people were trying to fight to try to, you know, construct uh, in a way a universal theory for statistics. People have given that up. I mean, that was uh, do- doomed, I think. But, and uh, I came in, I learned at the sort of tail end of that attempt to have a, a great unified theory. Um, and that's just gone out the window now. It's, everything's much more pragmatic and ecumenical. I move between them all very, very, you know, very casually. It's just that you should understand what you're doing and you should be able to, you know, see what's going on and to understand the limitations of what you're doing. But there's no correct way of doing it. There's no correct theory of statistical inference. Particularly as whatever you do, I mean, this is why I I almost get cross with everybody because it's all dependent on the assumptions. Um, And the the classic example I got is that in, in the UK, you know, there are eight different teams, great really good building models to estimate, you know, this magic quantity R, RT, you know, the current number, average number of people that somebody will infect if they get COVID. And um, 
And they come up with their, they do all their analyses. They all try, all try to estimate the same quantity using largely the same data. And they all come up with completely different answers. You know, their, their intervals don't even overlap. They're a hang on, you can't all be right. If your intervals don't overlap, some of you must, at least some of you, if not all of you, must be wrong. So what that means is that the, the, because these intervals are dependent on assuming the model is true and the model is wrong. So that, that you know, you think, well, thank goodness, there's eight teams doing it, not just one. And that really reveals to me, you know, makes me very, in a way, cautious, if not sceptical about a lot of statistical modelling, especially the intervals that come out of it, because they're all understatements of the real uncertainties, whether they're Bayesian or classical, it doesn't matter. It, it, it seems like the prior distribution is something that makes Bayes' theorem so controversial. Why is that? Oh, yeah, no, I was just saying, and of course it does. It's what makes it so powerful, but so controversial, because it is a mathematical expression of judgment. And, you know, and there's no avoiding that. And it's something to wave a flag. Yeah, I, my judgment has gone into this analysis in some extent. It may just be a judgment about perhaps, you know, how smooth the cur underlying curve might be. So maybe something, not saying where I think the curve is, but just how smooth it might be. So it might be just some imposition of a certain amount of smoothing in the model, just to make it estimable or something like that. Now, the point is that within the Bayesian framework, these things should be made very explicit and critiqued and justified. Whereas when there's always, whereas in a classical framework, there's huge judgments being made about the structure of the model, but they're just sort of swept under the carpet sometimes by just saying, oh, that's the model we're assuming. Well, hang on, why? It's wrong. This is a judgment you're making. And I'd much rather this was, this was a lot more explicit that you are bringing judgment into your analysis. And it's, you know, the pretense that somehow statistics happens as some automatic process that, oh, this is the correct way to do it is, is, is nonsensical. It's always, always judgment. But it, it seems like Bayes' theorem is like the scientifically correct way to change your mind when you yep. get new evidence, right? So, yep. so what, why is that the case if, if judgment is, is like so controversial? But, is it, but it's because it's, it's only internal based there, only um, uh, assures internal consistency. Given your initial assumptions and some data, it tells you what you then should believe. But you might have been wrong in the first place. You know, everything might, you might be completely deluded. So it just, you know, assures internal consistency. And that's why, you know, that's something I believe very strongly is that, that you know, if any, anybody making any judgments, Bayesian or otherwise, <clears throat> probabilistic judgments should constantly be checking them against the real world. And there's a whole idea of scoring rules, which are the mathematically appropriate ways to check how good your probability distributions are. If you keep on giving, you know, tiny probabilities to events that happen, then you, sh you shouldn't be taken very seriously by anybody else. You should, you should question what you're, what you're doing yourself. I mean, th that's really shown so strongly in the work of super forecasters that use you know, um, a particular scoring mechanism. They, put prob they don't say what's going to happen. They only use probabilities. And, um, and you find these super forecasters by their scores being better than other people's because their probabilities are more reliable. When they say something's Seven, they give something a 70% chance, then out of those times, it happens roughly 70% of the time. But they also use, they, you can't get away with just doing that. You also have to have probabilities that, that at least sometimes, you know, are near 100 or naught, because otherwise you're not being very helpful. So super forecasters can combine those two things. They can discriminate, but they can also have reliable. And that's all based on judgment. I mean, there is some modeling, perhaps, but mostly it's judgment. So I think that's a really good, meta, you know, demonstration of these ideas that you you want internal consistency, but you want also empirical validation with the real world. Yeah. I've been uh, reading a little bit of David Deutsch lately as well, and he, he's having some qualms, I guess, with with Bayesianism. He says that Bayesian, you know, it, it Bayesianism becomes controversial when you try to use it as a way to generate new ideas or judge one explanation against another um I, I guess how do we reconcile that when we're faced with some epistemic uncertainty? yeah i mean I, I i get very suspicious of bayesian approaches to, for example to giving probabilities on scientific theories or something mm. like that i i don't i really don't like that i don't like that i don't even like probabilities on models particularly because again Definetti says that you should only give probabilities to things that are empirically at least in theory empirically verifiable in other words there is the possibility that they you will find out whether one which one is true. 
So in crime, yeah, someone either did it, did something, or they didn't. You know, it is a, there is some underlying fact there. But when you come to scientific theories, well, it depends what you think a scientific theory is. Is it really a fact about the world, or is it just a, an adequate explanation that's useful to assume for a while? So I, I am very cautious about using it in those circumstances of where it's used to put probabilities on on things that are not empirically verifiable. So I like to use it, I like to think it's, it's being used on facts about the world, verifiable facts about the world, or that might be verifiable in the future. Not more, I don't like using it for more um, abstract ideas. How about using it to help us in our everyday lives to make better decisions? It, how can we use Bayes in, in that context? Oh, well, we do it all the time. We've got Bayesian brains. We're doing it whether you like it or not. Our, brain, our brains are constantly, everything is Bayesian. And the brain is that, you know, it doesn't rely on data. It doesn't rely on what we're seeing in front of us. You know, what we're seeing in front of us merely serves to adjust what we expected to see in front of us. Uh, if we had to constantly just see everything anew, you know, we just couldn't cope with that with that overload. So the brain is, you know, we are Bayesian. That's it. We, we update our expectations with what we see, and that allows us to navigate the world, just like, just like a um, you know, self-driven car. Then that, they're all Bayesian completely. They've all got a model for how the world works. They see new, you know, bits of new data, and that revises what they believe. So, and they, all ha they have to work that way, but we work that way. So that's what we do. Now, we might not do it very well. We might have delusions. We might have, you know, not see things well. We, we can be misled in all sorts of ways. But that's what we're trying to do. So I know we got just a, a few minutes left. I want to ask a couple of formal questions before we jump into just a real quick lightning round. Are you good to stay around for about five to six more minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, fine. Yeah. Awesome. So there's this quote that I absolutely love from the Professor Risk video. I'd love for you to, to, to elaborate on this. And it's one of the biggest risks is being too cautious oh, yeah yeah absolutely and that's what I, I i talk to school kids quite a lot and i always say yeah take risks take risks don't be reckless don't be stupid you know think of the consequences of what you're doing but if you don't if nobody takes any risks oh for god's sakes what a dull old life we're gonna have you know you, you won't get out of bed that's pretty dangerous as well so you know no life is a risk we don't know what's going to happen thank goodness God, this may be awful if we knew what was going to happen. So, no, 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 there's, uh, we've got to take risks in all ways. And I'm not just thinking of physical risks. There's so many other risks we take in terms of, you know, friends and jobs and enthusiasms and, you know, just, yeah. I, 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 I'm quite cautious in many ways, but also I do try to be as bold as possible. And because that's the only way you learn, usually by failing, you know, but then you learn. So boldness, not recklessness. God, don't be reckless, don't be stupid. So I won't get on a motorbike, for example. You know, I, I, I'm pretty scared of that, but I will do most other things. Um, and so I, I got my own little, and we've all got it. You know, I don't regard it. I don't re respond to risks in a completely rational way at all. I mean, my emotions come into it massively. I'm, I'm sure I'm not completely rational about lots of things that I do, but I do genuinely feel that you just, you know, if you're going to experience, you're going to learn. You have to try new experiences. Yeah. And that's when, when I talk to school kids, I say that. But just don't be stupid. You know, don't do things, you know, that could have really serious consequences. Unless you, yeah, yeah, just be really, really careful about things that have got big downsides. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big, right? Why not? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why not try to yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 make sure you got some insurance. I think. Yeah. Crucial. yeah. <laughs> I used protect to, yourself against the big downside. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I used to be. Uh, I used to be an actuary for a while. So, you know, just make sure you're yeah. not paying too much of the premium. <laughs> so, uh, last yeah. formal question before we jump into what I like to call the random round. It is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Oh goodness! Oh Christ! Um, oh, I don't know. I, I don't. Nobody will remember remember me at all. Um, oh, I, I think. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Oh, I think as, as somebody who, in a way, one of the developers, what am I called? You know, performing statistician that try to put statistics onto a public stage and realize that this involved, you know, an element of of acting, a performance of personality coming into it, and I think. Uh, I just thought of that. I'd never thought of that before. But I think that's, you know, rather than, you know, actually what I might do is, you know, remember some of the, the statistical stuff I do, which may 
seems to be surviving quite well in terms of citations. We're still getting vast numbers of citations every year. So, so the work might continue, but in fact, that's not what I care most about. It. Let's jump into a random round here. First question is, what do you believe that other people think is crazy? Sorry, what do I believe? Oh, the other, oh yeah, oh God. Yes, I did see, look at that. I thought, I don't know. Oh, I've got quite a lot of crazy things. Um, I've got crazy friends and I quite like crazy things. So, you know, Reiki, uh, I have treatments where people just put their hands on, don't even touch me, have their hands on me. So I like that. I know what other things do I do, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by religious ritual and I will take part in religious rituals. Um, I, th- I think they're, interesting and i've got a lot of respect for them and and really you know you know real strong you know proper <laughs> bonkers <Yeah>. stuff <laughs> what do you uh what are you most curious about right now oh what am i curious about right now oh i think the thing that fascinates me is about misinformation i think uh, it's about you know how, how it spreads what we might do about it um particularly statistical misinformation because i i just I have a real fear. It's my big fear, I think, with the breakdown of, of normal media and normal social, a lot of social relations, just how easily people are influenced by influences and um, by by bonkers ideas. Now, I got my bonkers ideas, which I'm quite fond of, but um, there are some, but I don't think they're very dangerous. And there are a lot of really dangerous bonkers ideas out there. And uh, and they seem to be taking, you know, spreading. So I think that's what I'm curious about is what actually can be you know, how can we try to, um, I don't know, uh, yeah, slow that down. What are you currently reading? Oh, well, I read terrible things. I know, I, I'm reading a great book on luck, it hasn't come out yet by um, oh. a guy. So, and he's a gamble, he's a you know, uh, poker, serious poker player. So, nice book on luck, um, because I'm fascinated by luck. I've mean, done a what I think is quite a good radio program on luck. Um, uh-huh. I learned so much from a philosopher. Angie Hobbs, she's a philosopher of luck. Oh, got it. Four different types of luck. And oh, it's brilliant. I yes. really uh, that. the four different types of luck. Is it from this book, Chase, Chance, and Creativity, where he talks about luck, uh, you know, type one, type two, type three, type four. There's oh, I don't know, maybe. No, she had yeah. a different list, but okay. the one I really liked was the um uh, constitutive luck, or which is just the luck in who you've been born as, which I think is just a brilliant bit of idea of that. Because it's one, it's one over which one has absolutely no control whatsoever. You know, because lucky, think of it as something you have outside of your control. But the biggest yeah. thing is outside of your control is who you are and where, you, where in time and space and family mm-hmm. you have been born. And because yeah. well, I, I think I've been hugely blessed with that, do, which dominates so much. And I think, yeah. bloody hell, that's it. You know, and, and you certainly can't give yourself any credit for who you are. So um, yeah. I think... That's that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I definitely would want to uh, check that check that book out. Yeah, because I'm also fascinated by by luck as well. I mean, being a statistician, data scientist of sort, somebody who loves probability theory. In this book, he talks about the the four types. There's type one luck is dumb luck, blind luck, where you have no control over it. Uh, yeah. Type two luck is the luck that happens to you just because of your own actions and your own oh, activities. And yeah, then, you put yourself. Yeah, I mean that's why you put yeah. yourself in situations where you allow it to happen. No, yeah, you make your own luck. Yeah, exactly. Really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, there was that Winston uh, Churchill uh, quote: "We we make our fortunes and we call it fate, or something like that." Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which is not completely true at all because it depends who. I mean, I think I think constitutive luck: who you're born as dominates. And um, just a. Uh, Who's the name of that the author that's writing that book that you're? Oh, Angie having? Angie Hobbs. Anyway, the, I, yeah. I, the link is a radio program. It's called Archive on Forum. Like I think okay. it was, and I interviewed the poker player as well, whose book I'm reading. Awesome. I'll so, definitely I, have to look into that. Yeah, I want to uh, want to definitely check that out. Um, let's let's go ahead and open up a random question generator. Get a few uh, questions in here. Uh, oh, yeah. cool. Here we go. First question. <laughs> I love it. I love the duck. <laughs> yeah. Zen state. Don't give me a question. What do you like most about your family? Oh, I love them. Well, I, 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 a couple of things. First of all, they put up with me, um, and that's the best thing of all. But actually, I, I, the, the humour, I think, and the humanity, but the um, the humour is very important. Yeah. What was your best birthday? Oh, oh goodness, that's incredible! It's probably when I was six or I was sixty-five. Um, yeah, I think actually the one, I, my 65th, I had a, a wonderful 
party in a friend's garden um, and we had entertainers and uh, you know music and it was it was just lovely it was just lovely yeah I quite like being old. I quite like being old. That's the point. I don't mind at all being old. Oh, goodness me. Oh, that's such a good question. When was the last time you changed your opinion about something major? Oh, no, that's very difficult just to think of. Um, oh, COVID. COVID. Mm. Oh, God. Yeah, last March. Oh, I was I was under on March 2020. Oh, I oh, poor. Oh, what's all the fuss about? It wasn't quite that bad, but I really, um, I was deluded. I, I, you know, I should understand exponential growth, but I know I was, you know, thinking, oh, it'll, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I certainly wasn't keen on the people I thought were fear-mongering about how awful this was, must do something. No, they were right. No, I had to change yeah. my mind. Yeah. So I was totally deluded. I'm glad nobody was listening to me. I mean, I, I didn't say anything in public, yeah. but I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. And for those listening, Professor Spiegel Halter has another book that this most recent book is called COVID by the Numbers. So definitely check that out. Uh, haven't been able to check that one out yet, but once it's released in Canada, I will definitely be, be checking that one out. <laughs> so, uh, Professor Spiegel Halter, how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, on Twitter is, um, you know, uh, handle D underscore Spiegel. I'm easy to find on Twitter. I got, since COVID, I got my followers have increased rather a lot. And uh, you can easily find my email address my, on my website, just Google the name. There's not, not that many active speaker holders uh, around because it, it is a stupid name. So, so. And those listening, I highly recommend the book, The Art of Statistics. Absolutely love this Thanks book. Thanks for the plug. Thanks yeah, for the plug. absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really appreciate you being here. It's a real pleasure, honestly. It's uh, it's not often you get a chance to so ramble on about your enthusiasms for an hour. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. And my friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet, so why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Be, be bold, but don't be reckless. 